The following program is a PBS Wisconsin original production. President Joe Biden delivers his State of the Union address before landing in Wisconsin. State lawmakers outline strategies for the laborious budget process, and a private land dispute leaves residents trapped in their homes. I'm Frederica Freiberg, tonight on Here and Now, a preview of upcoming state budget deliberations, the emergency efforts being deployed in a small town with off-the-charts PFAS contamination. A conflict of land ownership leads to a standoff with no end in sight, and the next in our series of interviews with candidates for the state Supreme Court. It's Here and Now for February 10th. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin. Laborers here in Wisconsin, union workers across the country are seeing it firsthand. Because for the first time in a long time, we're building an economy from the bottom up and the middle out. The bottom up and the middle out. With products made in America with union labor, not labor, union labor. That was President Joe Biden in DeForest this week, straight off his State of the Union address, where he promoted his economic plan, increased jobs, and lower inflation. In state news, next week, Governor Tony Evers will give his budget address, where he will lay out his vision for how the state should spend the $7 billion surplus. We asked the legislative leaders and the governor if he should craft a budget that would be welcomed by Republicans or if he should continue to include big ideas, even if they were dead on arrival in the Republican legislature. Our role, I, I do see, is twofold, right? We need to put forward that vision for what we believe Wisconsin should look like. We need to make sure that we're continuing to say that working families deserve better. And here's the path that we would take to get them there. And we need to find every opportunity to work across the aisle. And that's what the budget process does, right? I think a better question is, is the governor willing to actually negotiate with us during this budget cycle? You know, if, if he wants to put out a budget with his political priorities, that's fine, but we'll do what we've done in the past to start, start from base and, and go forward. But if, you know, if the governor is willing to work with us and negotiate, you know, I think we can accomplish some of the things that he wants to accomplish while still doing important tax relief, um, investing in education, expanding school choice. So my Republican colleagues might say, oh, we're not going to legalize cannabis in Wisconsin. That's dead on arrival. Um, we're not going to expand health care in the state of Wisconsin. That's dead on arrival. Um, we're not going to support our public schools to the full capacity that we should. That's dead on arrival. At the same time, we know that those are issues that the vast majority of the people in Wisconsin, um, upwards of 70, 80 percent on some of these issues, support. They are not partisan. And this is our opportunity to, to debate them. Because frankly, when they're introduced as standalone bills in the legislature, the Republicans who have control over that committee process aren't even allowing us to come to the table and have a debate, having a committee meeting. What Governor Evers is doing is if he chooses to put together a document that's chock full of a wish list, he really can't be critical when none of it's included. Well, there might be good ideas in there, right? And if he chooses to make it so full of things that are unappetizing to Republicans, you're not even going to have a chance to have some of the better things taken, uh, taken a serious look at. So it seems to me that most people around the country um, that I have seen in divided legislatures, when you have a governor of one party and, you know, the, the legislature of the other, 
they don't start off with some kind of a crazy idea. Governor Doyle did that. If you look at how he chose to put his budgets together, he didn't shock it full of all kinds of liberal crazy stuff. He put together what he thought was as reasonable as he could be, and he hoped that the Republicans would do the same thing. Well, he probably got a lot more of the things that he wanted than Tony Evers did with his method, so it's up to him to decide. If we started with a compromise position, first of all, people of Wisconsin would be utterly disappointed that we didn't talk about some issues that they think are important, and uh, maybe the legislature and the Republicans in the legislature don't. So it's important to talk about the values that we hear about and uh, have people talk about it and, and come to some compromise position if they can. With the unprecedented projected budget surplus, the jockeying is underway for how much of it to spend funding critical needs. Among them, cleaning up forever chemicals or PFAS contamination across Wisconsin, including in the tiny town of Stella near Rhinelander, where residents are now supplied bottled water because testing of private wells found sky-high levels of the dangerous PFAS, the worst contamination in Wisconsin. The Republican state senator whose district includes Stella says some of the surplus could be used for remediation. Mary Felskowski is also a member of the powerful budget-riding Joint Finance Committee. We talked with her at her Capitol office. First, I do want to say thanks very much for doing this with us. Oh, you're very welcome. So you have said that uh, PFAS contamination and mitigation is not a partisan issue. Uh, it certainly seems to have been in the recent past, but what has changed now? See, and I would disagree that it's been a partisan issue. I think there's been, um, you know, maybe some differences, opinions uh, between the different parties on where the level should be set, whether it's 20 parts per trillion, 70 parts per trillion. You know, there's Canada was at one time at 120 parts per trillion. And I think the Republican stance on this is let's not get ahead of technology. I mean, you can set a PFAS level very, very low, but if we don't have the technology to get there, why would we do that? Do you feel as though we have more time when we're dealing with these forever chemicals? We don't have any time I, when we're talking about people's health, but we have to be realistic. You know, technology is moving at an accelerated rate, and we need to make sure that the levels that we're setting are attainable levels. Do you have any idea what level you would think it should be? So I've heard, you know, when you talk to EPA, at first it was, they were at 70 parts per trillion, and I know Wisconsin DNR was pushing for levels at 20 parts per trillion. It is my understanding that um, EPA is now moving towards that 20 parts per trillion also. Meanwhile, in the town of Stella, yeah. uh, residents in, with their private wells are seeing the highest levels of these forever chemicals. Uh, anywhere across the state, and uh, what is it, 50 households are now being given drinking water. W what is your message to these people in your district? So I went to the hearing in Stella uh, when they had a public hearing on it, and the DNR was there, Department of Health was there, and some of the wells are coming in at 46,000 parts per trillion. The saddest part about this is we don't know where it's coming from yet. Um, but PFAS has a fingerprint. So when they can start testing these chemicals, that it will have a distinct fingerprint, so to speak, and I know this is not a real good scientific explanation, but they will be able to trace it back to its source. So I think right now, I think what we're doing as far as making sure that they have clean drinking water, I can't imagine being one of the people in the town of Stella because you know, this is not only your life, 
but now we have a decrease in property values. Everything there is, and with no answers. Can you tell um, the people in Stella and elsewhere across the state that the Calvary is now coming because budget riders will be able to work with a more than $7 billion surplus to address PFAS contamination? So the $7 billion surplus, we're gonna, we're gonna pause on that. Four and a half of that billion is one-time money. It's not forever money. It's not like we're gonna see that surplus year over year over year. Fiscal Bureau estimates that the, that the surplus that will be a continuing surplus is about 2.9 billion. So the large portion of this surplus is one-time money. But in my world, one-time is money, you know, this would be a great start for one-time money. Um, I support the governor putting 100 million in there. Um, but I also would like to look at the programs. This is, you know, when he talks about it, it's a well compensation fund, and that, that might not be structured perfectly for the people that are dealing with PFAS. Um, we need, to, we need a lot more knowledge on where did it come from, and then how do we clean it up? Do you believe um, the Republican uh, majority and uh, budget riders will also say that they like the $100 million that the governor is talking about? We haven't had those conversations yet, so I can't really say, but I know my colleagues um, are very concerned with this. Um, and that, that we will address it. I can't, I can't speak for everyone else about the level of commitment on that. Uh, why um, shouldn't businesses that cause this contamination have to pay for the remediation? I do believe that any type of remediation will be a public-private partnership, but we have a chemical that was developed, um, studied by the FDA and the um, EPA, and given a stamp of approval by the government that said, this is a good chemical, go ahead and use it. We use it in medical devices, we use it in food, we use it in um, waterproofing our clothing, we use it in firefighting foam. The Rhinelander Airport is being sued right now because they're saying that they are one of the you know, contributors to the PFAS contamination. Yes, they are. But they were mandated by the FAA to utilize it and have it on hand. So are we really going to bankrupt a company that was using a government-approved chemical and told that it's safe to use? If we do that, I think they can be part of the solution, but I don't think they're the sole solution. Tough questions. With that tough question, we need to leave it. Senator, thanks very much. You bet. Thank you for having me. That was Senator Mary Felskowski. Her district also includes Lac du Flambeau, where a property standoff between tribal government and local residents has come to a head. Here and now's Nathan Denzine reports how access to homes over tribal land has been blocked over an easement dispute. It's been two weeks since the Lac du Flambeau tribe blocked four access roads that run through tribal lands, and residents say they're not sure if the chains will come down anytime soon. Unless all the parties are really willing to sit down in person, I'm concerned that this could drag on for a while. The dispute that blocked the roads has taken course over the last 10 years. Starting in 2013, agreements for passage on the roads lapsed between the tribe and title companies that insure most of the houses in the area. Since then, no new agreement has been in place. The roads in question cut through tribal lands, which, according to the tribe, means the non-tribal homeowners have been trespassing. 
Meese owns a home in the area and says he and his neighbors were given about two weeks' notice before the barriers went up. In a statement released January 31st, Locke du Flambeau tribal president John Johnson Sr. said, quote, The town of Locke du Flambeau and the title companies have not always acted in good faith to resolve this issue. The tribe is fed up with the title company's games. In response to the barriers, First American, one of the title companies involved, told PBS Wisconsin, quote, First American Title has made a good faith offer on behalf of our insured homeowners to the tribe based on historical precedent from prior negotiated right-of-way easements. Although First American says they have made an offer, the barriers have remained in place. Because of these roads being blocked, about 55 households are now stuck in a situation where their cars can leave but would not be allowed back in. The thing that we've tried to say is that the people that don't have responsibility and the people that ultimately are paying the price for this are the homeowners. In order to get groceries and other supplies, Meese and his family walk across a lake to their car, which is parked at a neighbor's house located on a public road. If we need to go get groceries, for example, our kids are all grown, but we have their sleds, their little plastic sleds, and we walk across the lake and go to our neighbors and get in the Jeep and only get as much stuff as we can fit on the sleds um, because they got it's got to make it back. Meese says the trek across the lake isn't too bad for his family, but for others in his community, the trip isn't possible. Um, we do have a person, and she actually had a high school a high schooler that is actually a special needs child. And um, she and her child actually had to leave and move back to Iowa to some family members because they, they literally couldn't, yeah, there was no way to handle this otherwise. While the roads are blocked, Vilas County Sheriff Joe Fath said he has been in contact with the Lac du Flambeau Tribal Police, who say they have directed twice daily wellness checks. Police say they have delivered medication to at least two residents and have offered food box deliveries. However, Meese says those wellness checks are far less frequent than the tribe claims. They've been back in our neighborhood twice in that time. And I know that some of the people have maybe only had a check-in uh, one time. While residents wait for a solution that would grant them access to the roads again, Governor Evers met with tribal leaders Monday and said the meeting was productive. In a statement, the governor said, quote, as this is an ongoing private dispute, my priority as governor is encouraging everyone in the area to engage amicably and peacefully with each other while working to bring all parties to the table to resolve this issue quickly. The Lac du Flambeau tribe has since put out a statement saying they are hopeful the issue can be resolved in a timely manner, while the town met Tuesday to consider possible legal action. One possible short-term solution, requested by both the town and First American, would be to negotiate new easements in person and lift the barriers while negotiating. However, no action has been taken. Meese says nobody is sure when the barricades will actually be lifted. We need these people to all take responsibility for this, to get this thing figured out, get these roads unblocked, get the easements in place, make sure the tribe is, is compensated fairly for, for their easements, and we can all get back to lives. For Here and Now, I'm Nathan Denzine. Many thanks to WJFW-TV and Rhinelander for their videography for that report. 
Finally tonight, we have the fourth in our series of interviews with the candidates for a seat on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. The primary is on February 21st, with the top two vote-getters advancing to the general election in April. Earlier this week, here and now senior political reporter Zach Schultz sat down with Jennifer Doro, a Waukesha County Circuit Court judge. Can you break down your judicial philosophy for me? Sure. So I'm a judicial conservative, which means I believe in upholding the law as written and applying that law to the facts of every case, giving deference to our legislative uh, statutes because that's where policy is made and never, ever legislating from the bench. How do you define legislating from the bench? Because there's a lot of disagreement over when a court makes a ruling, whether they're rearranging the law to fit a need or an opinion versus this is all we have to go on. When a judge or justice inserts their own political agenda, policy views, or personal opinions on what the law should be, that's my definition of legislating from the bench. And I say that because it's the role of a judge to apply the law as written to the facts of the cases that come before us, to never prejudge those cases, to be fair and impartial and in our government, we have a system that's set up a very clear separation of powers. Our legislative uh, figures, right, our assemblymen, our senators, they make the law. That's where the policy of the state is set. And then judges interpret that when called upon to do that. And so it's very important that judges act more like umpires, right? We don't um, make the law, we just decide the law. And if you think of the analogy to baseball, right, just calling the balls and strikes, not the pitcher, not the catcher, but just calling the balls and strikes. And that's what a judge does and a justice should do is call the legal balls and strikes that come before him or her. So you said that the politics shouldn't enter into the decision, but obviously this is a political race and there are a lot of political uh, factors weighing into all the candidates. And when constituents are out there thinking about who they want to vote for, some of them are thinking through a political frame of reference. So how do you balance that when you want people to know that you will be impartial on the bench, but people also want to have a sense of your politics? It's very important to honor that this is a nonpartisan race and that my political views or my policy preferences are not going to impact what I do on the bench. That's very different from the liberal candidates. And I know we give them labels, right? Liberal and conservative. And I think that's just a, a simple way to identify for the public what our judicial philosophies are and what our approach to the law is. But you have two candidates who are openly giving us their political agenda, campaigning on a political agenda, and forecasting how they would vote on many important issues. They're telling the future litigants their mind is made up, that they don't care about the facts, they don't care about the law. Vote for me because I'll do X, Y, or Z. That is not the methodology that I will follow and that I have been following for 11 years on the bench. It's really important that every judge and justice stay in their constitutional lane, and that's what I'll do. What should voters then think of your background, who you were appointed by, who's endorsing you, who's supporting you, where the, the outside money that's going to support you comes from? 
where your family members and their connections to other political figures, because obviously those exist. And the liberal candidates in this race are saying, well, we're just being upfront and honest with voters. And it's the conservatives who are trying to hide where the real influence may be. The candidates on the left are telling you about a political agenda when this is not a race for a legislative or gubernatorial position. That's why it's important for me as someone who believes in upholding the rule of law and being fair and impartial to not talk about my personal preferences. You know, I wear a robe for a reason. One of those reasons is to show the public, show the litigants, and then remind me that I need to be fair and impartial. I cover up those personal preferences so that I make a decision that's based on the law. When you make a decision based on the law, you have predictability, reliability, and stability. I want to look back at a few cases that the Supreme Court have decided that are still pretty important. Um, legislature versus Palm was about the governor's ability to put the restrictions during COVID. How do you think that case was handled? How would you have ruled if you had been on the bench at the time? The majority opinion in that case was written by Justice Rogan Sack, and they focused on uh, that it was a rule that had universal applicability to the people of Wisconsin and that uh, that procedure was not followed. And that certainly I um, found myself, you know, looking at their analysis and saying they got it right. Of course, every case is different, and I don't want to prejudge cases that might come before the court um, again or in the future that look at, you know, issues of, you know, authority for a branch of government, whether it's directly or delegation. And abortion's another issue that's likely going to come back to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. So I want to ask you how you might rule on that. But on the Dobbs decision that is now the law of the land, do you think that was decided fairly? And is that the appropriate uh, method from which to review any law? Or is it now a Wisconsin law that needs to be looked at on its own outside of Dobbs? As a Supreme Court case from the U.S. Supreme Court, it obviously uh, is the law of the land. And uh, I'm duty bound to follow that. And what that case did is put the decision of regulating abortion in the hands of the state legislature. That's where that decision should be made. Um, and of course, there is a challenge right now. It's not a constitutional challenge. Um, it's the question that's before the court uh, will really be, what is the status of the law in Wisconsin? Um, I won't comment any further, right? Because that's likely to make its way up to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Um, but again, as a, a sitting judge and as a hopeful to be on the Wisconsin Supreme Court, I have to give honor to the decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court. Is there a danger in voters approaching this election, looking through only the prism of one or two hot button political issues and saying, well, I'm going to vote for the candidate that most closely follows my views there, as opposed to more broadly looking at what do I want in a Supreme Court justice? I think the danger is that there's candidates who are openly campaigning on a political agenda on a couple of, you know, very important and controversial topics. 
and that voter should be looking at how are the justices going to decide the cases that come before the court, not just on a couple of topics, but on all topics. That's where being fair and impartial, as judges, we take an oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States, to uphold the Constitution of the state of Wisconsin, and to faithfully discharge the duties of our office, to be fair and impartial. That's what justices and judges should do. That honors the role of the courts. It honors the role of the legislature. And it honors the voice of the people as well, because the people speak through our legislators. That's where policy is made. And I will never insert my policy preferences into the decisions that I make. And I think that's what voters will be looking at so that they know whatever the issue is that comes before the court, they can trust the decisions that are made. And finally, this is getting a lot of attention both in Wisconsin and nationally. How much will that affect the race that people are starting to understand the importance of this particular race to the Wisconsin Supreme Court? It's a position on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. It's incredibly important to the people of the state of Wisconsin. I can certainly see that as I go around the state campaigning. And there are a lot of eyes looking at this race as well. I think for the wrong reasons. I think there's a push from the left to push this political agenda so that not only Wisconsin can be transformed and not in a good way, not through the legislative process, but through a vote of four to three on the Wisconsin Supreme Court so that uh, other political agendas can be met as well. That's wrong. It has no place in the courts. And I do believe that the people of the state of Wisconsin see that and want a court that's fair and impartial instead of one that's driven by a political agenda. You can see all of the interviews with the candidates on our news page. For more on this and other issues facing Wisconsin, visit our website at pbswisconsin.org and then click on the News tab. Also, you can tune in to PBS Wisconsin and Wisconsin Public Radio next Wednesday at 7 p.m. for the Governor's Budget Address. That's our program for tonight. I'm Frederica Freiberg. Have a good weekend. for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin.